Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. It's a joy to be with you guys. You know what? Let's do this. Let's open up to Hebrews 4 together. Uh, Hebrews 4 gives us beautiful language. I believe we're after something very specific this morning, as I said. Uh, I believe with all of my heart, the Lord wants to set people free this morning who have been captive. And I'm going to explain. We're going to build something. It's going to sound a little intense in the beginning, but let's, let's just give grace. That have been captive to a way of life that God does not desire. Acts chapter 1, Jesus communicates that heaven has an agenda. He's alive from the dead. It's been 40 days. He's with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom. He is about to ascend, riding upon the cloud. The angels say, the same way you saw him go is the same way that you will see him return. We understand that because Paul communicates it in 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ will be raised. Those alive at the time of his appearing, we will ascend, we will rise. We will be lifted to meet him and to be gathered alongside him in the air upon the cloud. Jesus is teaching the disciples about the kingdom, after which they have questions if now is going to be the time that he reconciles all of their theological tensions because of the implications of him now being raised from the dead. Jesus is raised from the dead. He is resurrected. He is alive forever. The last Adam has now been raised. He is the last Adam because where the first Adam failed, Jesus has overcome. He has conquered the human experience, the fleshly captivity to our lives being governed by our appetites. Jesus is the last Adam because he is now the prototype. Romans 5 communicates it. If the first Adam sinned, he failed, he failed. And an inheritance came upon creation. The human experience was now in bondage. They were captive to what Paul says in Galatians 5 as the lusts of the flesh. The demands and the desires of our carnality. The human experience was governed by the human appetites. And Jesus is the last Adam because the first Adam was a picture. He was a version of the human experience. And Jesus being the last Adam is now the final experience of what humanity was always meant to be. We understand that he is the God-man because he is both God and man. Colossians 1 tells us that it pleased God to put the fullness of who he is into the man Jesus. That Jesus in every way, according to Philippians 2, would not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he 
emptied himself of his humanity, his carnality. He emptied himself of all of the rights that he could have leveraged against having to really live in an authentic way this human experience. And he emptied himself and became a servant. And in humility, he lowered himself into a human vehicle. That is mind-boggling all by itself. And as if that wasn't humble enough, he humbled himself even as a human to become a servant. And if that isn't mind-boggling enough, he humbled himself once again as a servant to willingly, joyfully lay down his life. And as if that isn't mind-boggling enough, as a human, as a servant, willingly laying down his life, that isn't enough. He humbles himself yet again to not just lay down his life, but to die the most humiliating possible death that a human could experience. And the one who is the way, the truth, and the life chose to experience death even if but for a moment or a couple of days in order to conquer in order to be raised in order to in love rise on the other side of the rock and the tomb and the ashes and the scorn and the shame and the humiliation and the criticism and all the spectators and haters he rose from the dead and is now alive forever, and the disciples understood the implications. And they had questions about what Jesus was about. And he tells them, you're worried about a lot of things, but I have an agenda. And he says, my agenda is there's real power coming to you. And this power that is coming to you is not up to you to interpret what you want to do with it. There's power coming to you, but power is coming with an agenda. And that agenda is because I long to have witnesses. He says, for in that day when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses. Right? This is very familiar language for, for all of us. You shall be my witnesses. He says, because this is what I want. I want witnesses in every space, in every place. I want witnesses in every city, in every region. I want witnesses. I want to transform people. I want this family of new creatures. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man be in Christ, that man is now a new creature. And this new version of humanity... I'm going to use to repopulate the nations of the world. And I'm going to plant them. I'm going to strategically place them. I'm going to send them into real life as real witnesses that have been really transformed so that they can be a real demonstration for the power of a real God that has a real desire to harvest a family from the nations before the return of his son. And Jesus said, there's power coming because I am longing to have witnesses. A family of new creatures, heavenly colonies planted throughout the nations of the world, 
to live as ambassadors, to live as representatives, to live as a transformed people through a born-again experience. A born-again experience implying that by the power of God's own divine life and spirit, we have now been dynamically and fundamentally reconfigured. We are not the thing that we used to be, which is why Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed. All things have become new. 1 Corinthians 15, he would say it this way. I am what I am, and what I am has been made real by the grace of God. We are radically reconfigured. And the the basis of the born-again experience is a new nature. The old man has been put in the grave, Romans 6. We don't live in the old house anymore. God hasn't just painted the walls of our old place of dwelling. You're not the same thing you used to be, but now you just wear Christian merch. That's not the way that it is. There wasn't just a little makeup needed for the exterior of man. Man needed an entirely new makeup. And that's what God has done. God has radically transformed. He has radically reconfigured the nature of the human experience where we are now living fundamentally from our guts on a default setting as a transformed person. I'm not trying to be something different with all the masks, the mirages, the smoke and mirrors, the image-based generation that we live in, the filters of all of our scrolling places and the desires of society and culture. No, no. This is the real deal. God has done something to me. He has caused his life to come alive on the inside of me. I am not the same thing that I used to be. That old man has been put in to the grave and just as Jesus was raised by the power of the spirit God has raised me up too and I'm now alive to God I'm a slave to righteousness and it's his spirit in me constantly conforming me to the image of the one that he has made the pattern and the pattern is this man the last Adam the prototype the firstborn from the dead according to Colossians chapter 1 He is the seed that has been sown into the soil. For unless a seed of wheat falls into the ground and dies, he says in John 12, it will not be able to multiply or to reproduce of itself. But Jesus is the seed sowing himself willingly into the soil of the earth in order to harvest for himself a people purchased with his own blood for God. A wildly transformed people in every possible way but on a fundamental level the basic way of living for the human experience we are radically different because we have a new nature and now what comes out of this new nature is natural that's what that means When you had an old nature, there were certain things that were natural. 
Because according to your nature, your appetites and what rose or flowed from your nature created desires, cravings, lusts, a demands that your appetite longed to be satisfied in certain ways. So whatever was coming from that nature seemed natural. But now you have a new nature. And now the spirit that is alive on the inside of us says that we are a people that hunger and thirst for righteousness, which means we have new appetites. And these new appetites are longing to be satisfied in new ways because you can't satisfy new appetites through old lifestyles. You're a new people. You're a transformed people. We are a brand new version of humanity. And this brand new version of humanity, Jesus would say, these are witnesses. Because witnesses, especially in legal matters, are ones that you bring into a case in order to provide evidence. They make a contribution. They come to provide evidence. And this is exactly what Jesus is issuing power for. He says, in that day when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, you're going to be a people that are transformed, and you're going to be a people that provide evidence. But I think at times we're looking for and longing for certain ways for Jesus to provide evidence that might not necessarily be as compatible with the witness that he himself gave. Because if we are being conformed to the image of Jesus, then it would be of great importance for us to study out the witness that he himself as a man gave according to the radical reconfiguration to the human experience that he put on display. And Jesus gave an extraordinary witness. And he gave a witness because he was filled with the Spirit. In fact, he would say in John 14, verse 30, when he was with his disciples, he said, I will not be able to be with you much longer. He said, for the enemy of the world is coming, or the prince of the power of the air, or depending on what your translation is. He said, but I am not afraid, for he has nothing or no thing in me. There is no thing in me that he can lay claim to. There is no thing that is alive on the inside of me that he can say looks like him, sounds like him, behaves like him, craves like him. There's no attitude. There's no desire. There's no dream. There is no thing in me, and therefore I am not Afraid. First John 4 would remind us that when perfect love is accomplishing its agenda, when the perfect love of the Father is alive in us, is working in us, when the Spirit is deeply anchored in our guts, sifting through everything about who we are, that it is doing this thing of the many things that it is doing, and when perfect love is at work, it has a desire to give an eviction notice to fear. So perfect love is evicting fear. Perfect love is uprooting fear. Perfect love is dealing with fear. And Jesus says, even though he is present, there is no thing in me that belongs to him. Jesus gave an extraordinary, 
witness of what it is that God desires. He provided evidence to all that gathered around him in what looked like his highest and lowest moments, in what looked like his strongest and weakest opportunities in order to be himself. He was always himself. Jesus was always authentically who God wanted him to be. Even standing before Pilate, Pilate says to him in John 19, why won't you say something to defend yourself? You hear what they're saying about you. Why won't you speak up? He says, you understand that I have the power over you to release you or to crucify you. And Jesus says, the only reason that you have even come to such a conclusion is because of the way that my father has designed this process for me. This is wild. And it's one of the moments where Pilate brings him out, clothed in a robe, crown of thorns, beaten badly. And he says to them, behold this man. And they say in response, we don't want anything to do with him. Crucify him. And I would suggest that this is one of the moments when God has presented himself before humanity. And humanity has rejected God's offering of a reference point of another way. Because this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus has come as a reference point to lay his life down. But he's also come as a reference point to provide humanity with a demonstration that there is another way other than the way that they have been captive to. That it is possible to live in a place of freedom from the tyranny of the human corruption and the cravings of its fleshly desires. That the human experience does not have to be one that is dominated by the carnality, dominated or governed by the appetites, governed by the attitudes, governed by the limitations of only and always what the flesh is going to be able to produce. Jesus is a reference point. And in the moment when God presents a reference point, humanity cries out, crucify him, crucify him. Because there will always only be one of two responses when God reveals himself. It was no different if you travel all the way back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 is one of the most overlooked places in all of the, the, what the scriptures is communicating. Exodus 19 is where God comes down upon the top of the mount. Hear me, God comes down and physically manifests himself upon the top of the mount. And there's the cloud, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's the rumblings, there's all of the wind, there's fire, there's glory, there's the voice. And what do they say whenever God chooses to reveal himself? His desire was that he would reveal something that they would choose to lean into, come up 
here and be with me so that you can be mine and I can accomplish what it is that I'm longing to accomplish. But what do they say when God reveals himself? They're like, oh, we don't want anything to do with that. Like, no, nah, man. Like, no, 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 no. We don't want that. Give us Moses. We'll deal with Moses because Moses is more like us. Moses is someone that we better identify with. Moses is someone that we understand. Even though he's challenging at times, we get him because we are more of the same thing than what it is that's being revealed on the top of the mount. And here we move from Exodus 19 to John 19. In John 19, once again, God is presenting himself before humanity. God is once again unveiling himself. Exodus 19 seemed like power, glory. John 19 seems like weakness, meekness. And in John 19, once again, the voice of humanity says in an uproar, they erupt. We don't want anything to do with him. Crucify him because he's difficult to deal with. But what do they say? Give us Barabbas. Barabbas, first off, is not a name that I would want to be named. But Barabbas is Bar-Abbas. And when you consider even the meaning of his name, Bar meaning the son of. Matthew 16, for uh, Peter has this wonderful revelation that he comes into. Uh, for thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds. He says, my father has shown you something. It is born of the spirit. He says, and you shall no longer be Simon bar Jonah, meaning the son of. So bar is the son of. Abba is father or the father. They say, give us Barabbas. Give us the son of the father that we more identify with. Give us the son of the father that's easier for us to understand. Give us the son of the father that's more like us. Give us the son of the father that we know we are more like. Because at times it's easier to identify with the criminal than it is with Jesus. Sometimes it's easier to identify with the liar than it is with Jesus. Sometimes it's easier to identify with the fugitive, with the murderer, with the alcoholic, with the adulterer. Sometimes it's easier to identify with the weakness, with the limitation, with the lies, with all of what we know is the bondage and the captivity of the human experience. And they say, give us that man because that man is is more like this man and when I'm confronted with that man he does not make me feel bad about the things that I know are still alive and radically happening on the inside but when I see that man that man confronts everything that's happening in this man and as long as I keep looking at that man I can't be satisfied with this man and the only way that I can stay satisfied with this man is if I cry out, give me Barabbas. And there's a voice that's alive on the inside of every one of us that believes that Barabbas has a right to live. 
For Pilate says, who do you want me to free? Which man do you want me to let live? And they say, crucify that man and give me that man. There's a voice alive on the inside of every single one of us that tries to rally for Barabbas, that tries to justify Barabbas staying alive. And they think that Pilate is the one that's setting Barabbas free. But what they don't understand is that Jesus has to lay down his life in order for Barabbas to actually be set free. Because Barabbas is only and always going to be Barabbas if Jesus does not give his life for Barabbas. Because Barabbas has a cancer on the inside that is always going to produce a Barabbas on the outside. And the only way that the cancer gets dealt with is if that man lays his life down for that man. The only way the corruption finds a way to be transformed is if that man gets crucified. The only way that the governor of the human experience and the attitudes of this fleshly life can be reconfigured is if that man takes the penalty, undeserving, yet faithful to the grave for that man. For this is God's wisdom. I will radically, generously, outrageously take the penalty for the sins that you've created against me. You see, because inside every single one of us is a Barabbas. Inside every single one of us is a man, a woman, that tries to justify our human experience. Well, bro, you don't understand, bro. Like, I mean, even Paul had a flesh. Even Paul had a thorn. Like, we're all going to have a thorn. You know what I'm saying? Like, bro, it's just, it's, it's the human way. We're all going to have weakness. We're all going to have sin. We're all going to fail. It'll be difficult to reap the reward of the truth if you keep sowing into the lie. Yes. And there has to come a point where we believe in our own conversion, where we understand that there is power at work on the inside to conquer the corruption and the death that once used to be alive on the inside, that used to limit, that used to govern, that used to direct all of our attitudes and our interactions, but that Jesus has actually laid his life down and raised it up again. And he has conquered death that will one day happen to all of us when we breathe our last. But I would suggest to you that Jesus has not only conquered death on that day, but he has also conquered death every day when death would attempt to come alive on the inside of each and every one of us. And here is where we find our bearings with what the writer of Hebrews is communicating in chapter 4. In verse 12, he says, For the word of God is alive, and it's active, and it's powerful, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and that it cuts, it sifts through everything that is soul and spirit. It divides even down to joint and marrow and that it searches, it investigates, it brings judgment to the attitudes and the intentions of the heart. And as you continue, he then goes on to say that Jesus was tempted in every possible way just as we are as he was 
a man, but yet was without sin. And then chapter 4 concludes by saying in moments when we are in need of grace, we can boldly approach the throne in so that the merciful one can be merciful towards us and give us grace in our times of need so that we can continue to rise to the occasion to be a witness to give evidence. Jesus conquered death that is alive on the inside of every single one of us. He was tempted in every possible way, but was without sin. Let's take a moment here. Every possible way, but was without sin. Well, we get it, right? He, he's not Judas. He's not the sellout. Right? He's not David on the rooftop looking at Bathsheba. He's not Cain out in the field, stoning his brother to death. We get that. He was tempted in every way, but was without sin. I would suggest to you that there is a way of life that demonstrates a power and a quality of living that only God could actually produce on the inside of each one of us. That one of the greatest ways that we are and continue to become witnesses is by providing an evidence that is only made possible by a divine life. Divine life conquers the self-life. This is the reality of Romans chapter 6. Our sin-inherited nature has been put to death. We are raised from the dead as a people. We are a transformed family of new creatures. We are filled with God's spirit, and now by his spirit, there is an evidence by the quality of life, the power of life revealed through the character of life that would not be possible if God had not actually done something to transform us on a default level. There is a character that reveals a power and a quality that you simply cannot fake without God actually touching you. There is a character that when tested reveals a glory that gives a witness that is comparable to the witness that God gave in the man Jesus. There is a character that is of a divine nature. It reveals a glory. It glows in the dark. It is illuminated by a divine life. It shines. It glows. It is stunning. It is awe-inspiring. And it most times happens through suffering, persecution, offense, trials, and tribulations. Because when everyone's dancing on the mountaintop, it's easy to all look the part. But when real life hits our doorstep, when real life confronts us where we actually live, when we are tested in every way to live from the place of our interactions being fueled by our sin nature rather than by a divine nature, we very easily are able to identify where Barabbas is still alive. Jesus was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. That means, if we put it in simple terms, that he was 
always his authentic self. Authentic means original. Authentic means real, pure. Authentic means the representation of one's true nature. Jesus always lived from the place of his true nature. Jesus always lived as his authentic self. Jesus always operated every thought, every action, everything about him was always being fueled from a divine life that he had from the inside. Now this might sound super theological and really unnecessary until you make it real. And let's make it real for a moment. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. That means he was always authentic. He was always his true self, even though the human experience around him was constantly sinning against him. People sinning against you is not license for sin to come alive in you. Jesus was always his true self which means that there was never a thing that infiltrated his sourcing of living from the place of a divine life. There was never an action. There was never a comment. There was never a criticism. There was never a circumstance or a situation that lured him into living from a place of sin, meaning responding to a sin nature rather than constantly living from a divine nature. Though tempted in every way, in every possible way, Jesus was free from the captivity of living through sinful restraint. That means he never lived from a place of bitterness. He never lived from a place of insecurity. He never lived from a place of unforgiveness. He never lived from a place of pride. He never lived from a place of rejection. He never tried to validate his brokenness in order to create a frame for which now he could justify interpreting his history and human experience in order to now give a presentation that was more in alignment with a Barabbas than it was through the divine life that God has made available. How many times do we justify living from a place of fleshly experience that's easier for us to justify. Come on, this is every single one of us. We frame our life in by our wounds, by our hurts. We live life from the platform of insecurity. We create lenses and we create touch points and reference points through our rejection, through our brokenness, through our unhealed wounds and traumatic experiences. And then we say that it's wisdom in order to cater to these things because we're hiding these things rather than longing for God to bring healing to these things. And it will always be difficult to find healing in things that we are hiding. And the voice of Barabbas on the inside wants to justify 
because it easier identifies with the brokenness. It easier identifies with the rejection. It more easily identifies with the rejection, with all of the traumatic history. It more easily identifies with the offense and now living life from a platform of offense and insecurity and pride and rejection and calling it wisdom to do so. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. In Matthew 26, Judas comes, and listen, listen to what Jesus says. This is Matthew 26, 50, I believe. He says, friend, what you've come to do, do it quickly. Who would you be if you lived unoffended? If you were able to love in an outrageously generous way, as if no one has ever betrayed you? Who would you be if your joy wasn't predetermined by people's opinions of you? Who would you be if God actually set you free to live as your authentic self rather than the self-expression that you justify that's framed in based off of all of the experiences that you more identify with? Who would you be if you weren't wrestling for Barabbas to still be able to live? Jesus says, friend, what you've come to do, do it quickly. Let me just say, unless you are really transformed, you're not going to be able to love those that betray you, that criticize you. And I'm not talking about just by creating distance. <laughs> you know what I mean? Praise God, I ain't never got to see you again. Right? Jesus washes his feet in John 13 and then looks in his face and says, I know who you are and I know what you're about. And I've chosen to love you anyways. Because I'm not going to allow an inauthentic version of you to bring compromise to an authentic version of me. <laughs> when they're nailing him to the tree, he's weeping over his enemies and interceding for his executioners. He says, forgive them, for they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. But I believe that by giving my life for them, that it's going to make a way for them to be radically set free from the tyranny and the governance of the fleshly experience where their life won't have to be dominated anymore by pain and rejection, where their life won't have to be dominated anymore by trauma and brokenness, where their life won't have to be lived and motivated and fueled by pride and insecurity, anguish, sorrow. But I'm going to give my life for them. And Father, I'm asking you to forgive them. Because what they're doing, they don't actually understand why they're doing it. But I'm going to give my life for them. And I'm going to send my spirit. And as I send my spirit, my spirit is going to fill them as they place their trust in me. And as they anchor their dependency in me and put their hope in me, I'm going to fill them. And I'm going to send them power. And in that day when the Holy Ghost comes upon you,
I'm going to send you power and you're going to receive power, but power is going to make you a witness. And let me tell you what would actually be an outrageous sign and a wonder. It would be a people, though you persecute them, you cannot offend them. Though you attempt to kill them, you cannot kill their joy. Though you attempt to rob them and assassinate them and criticize them, you cannot bring them into compromise where they will live in an inauthentic way that more justifies with inauthentic way of living, with a fleshly way of living through a value system from the system of the age. Though you betray them, they will not stop being faithful to you. This would be a sign and a wonder. But there's just something in us that wants to demand that Barabbas has a right to live. Stephen, at the end of Acts 7, stands being stoned to death. For any of you who say, well, it's only possible for Jesus to give that witness. He stands being stoned to death, and he too is weeping over enemies and interceding for executioners. Forgive them, Lord. Don't hold it against them. Man, when's the last time somebody offended you so deeply and you began interceding for them? Don't hold it against them. This only comes out of a transformed life. In most times, we want vengeance. In most times, I cry out for justice for them and grace for me. No, no, no. Comfort me, but go get them. They deserve it. Go get them. You don't understand what they did. You don't know what they said. You don't know how bad it hurt. Stephen is standing in the streets, giving an extraordinary witness. He's providing evidence that God has actually transformed the weakness, the brokenness, the insecurities of the human experience. He's actually harvesting a new creation for himself. And this new creation is living at all times being sourced by divine life. And this divine life is now creating a separation from the world, from the culture, from the experience of humanity that most of us are familiar with. And what is still normal for those guys is no longer normal for us guys. Because we are now reconfigured. We are now raised from the dead. And not just on that great day, but today. God has given power in order to put to death any kind of death that would want to come alive on the inside of you to where you no longer have to gratify the lustful desires of the flesh, as Paul would say in Galatians 5. But now as a spirit person, you can actually live in the spirit. You can walk by the spirit. You can put to death the sinful deeds and demands of this flesh and you can live a resurrected way of life before the moment where our bodies are actually raised from the dead. We can live with resurrection glory right now as a sign and a wonder, as a city on a hill, as a people that burn bright, as a people 
people that glow in the dark. We can mourn. We can weep. We can forgive in a radical way our enemies. We can hunger and thirst after righteousness even when persecuted for righteousness sake. We can count it all joy when we go through trials and tribulations because we are not what we used to be. And what God has done is only by his grace and only by his grace can I be what it is that you see that I am. And I feel like the Lord wants to give grace this morning for spaces and places in our life where we have justified operating from a place in life that is not being fueled by divine life. Let me just say this. Divine life is not fueling your offense. Divine life is not fueling bitterness. Divine life is not fueling unforgiveness. Divine life is not fueling pride and arrogance and self-exaltation. Divine life is not fueling all of the things that we so easily at times justify because of what's been done to us. Jesus has paid the price for what has been done to you. To no longer live from insecurity and fear. We find our value in the one that laid his life down for me. In the one that was raised up for me. In the one that filled me. This is where we find our value and it's where we find our bearings. And inside of every single one of us is a divine life. For those of us that are born again, for those of us that have put our hope in Jesus, for those of us that have pledged our allegiance to him as king, there is a divine life. There is the seed of God that is alive on the inside, that is bubbling up like rivers of living water that is flourishing and desiring to flourish like a tree that's been rooted by the streams of living water. And I believe that this morning the Lord wants to give grace and bring healing. That he wants to give grace and bring healing to a variety of things. To those of us who have been living in an inauthentic way, to those of us who are still battling wounds because of traumatic experiences. To those of us who have felt like a prisoner because of things that have happened to me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the things that have been done to me. I might not, but Jesus does. And he would look at you and he would say in like fashion, you don't know where I've been. You don't know the things that have been done to me. For those of us that have been wounded by church people, Jesus was crucified by them. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. We have so many excuses, so many ways that we try to justify being able to hold on because if I let it go, I won't be able to identify by it anymore. And who would I be then? You would be who God wants you to be. You wouldn't have to be someone who identifies with their pain, finds identification and creates a label out of your trauma 
the woman with the issue of blood. The scripture doesn't even give her a name. It's trying to tell us something. That at times it's so much easier for us to identify with where we've been and the things that have been done to us. With our issues, with our rejections, our insecurities, our pains, our struggles. But this morning I believe that if we'd be willing to give them to Jesus, that if we'd be willing to lay them down, that if we'd be willing to hand them over, cast your burdens upon the Lord, that he will give grace in an extraordinary way, that he will give grace in an outrageous way in order to not give you power to hide it better, but that he would actually touch you in a deep way down in your actual guts and heal you and make you whole and transform you to where you're no longer just trying to cover it up, but God has reconfigured it. And though it was real, you're not denying that it was real. Though it's real, what God has done is so real that it's given you power to live out of what God's done and no longer out of what people have done. I no longer want to live as a captive to what people have done. I want to live as a slave to righteousness because of what God has done. And Lord, if you would touch me and if you would raise me and if you would set me free, I want to be my authentic self. And no matter what's happening to me, I don't want to be lured into a place of compromise. Because again, though they sin against me, it does not give me the right to justify sin and death coming alive in me. It's not sin for sin. Jesus said that's the way that they live, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. He said, give them the other cheek, give them your jacket too, run the extra mile. I'm going to give you power to be transformed. You don't have to respond the same way that they do. You don't have to set your life up and carry the same attitudes. I'm going to give you divine life that's going to conquer that self-life. I'm telling you, it's going to be wild. It's going to be real. You're going to be a sign. You're going to be a wonder. You're going to be a witness. You're going to provide evidence. And what would it look like if in every space and place of this city and culture, God had witnesses that were providing evidence? I believe he wants it. I believe he gave his life for it. I believe he paid with blood to have it. And that he's issued his own spirit so that the human experience would no longer have to justify another way to live. Being human is no longer an excuse for living human or fleshly or carnal. God has given you power to conquer carnality. And what would it look like if God set you free to live in authenticity? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.